Hi, this is Mia Ashton for Public, and I'm joined today by three remarkable women. Erin, Emily, and Josie are all mothers of children who have been swept up in the current social contagion of rapid-onset gender dysphoria that is striking the Western world. Erin, Emily, and Josie are all members of the group Parents with Inconvenient Truths About Trends, or PIT, and today they'll be sharing their personal stories and we'll be talking about the upcoming release of Pitt's book, Tales from the Home Front in the Fight to Save Our Kids, which is a deeply moving collection of essays written by parents who have gone through or are going through the ordeal of watching their quirky, brilliant children fall victim to this moment of cultural madness. So welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for doing this. Now, let's start with, could you briefly introduce yourselves? Tell me a, a little bit about your, your stories. Let's start with Erin. Uh, so my name is Erin Friday. I am a co-lead of a group called Our Duty, which is a parent coalition, nonpartisan, non-religious group that is in the fight to protect uh, children from the gender harms and vulnerable adults. And I got involved in this um, because my daughter is a, what now I know is a typical rapid onset gender dysphoric child, a child who showed no signs of gender incongruence or confusion as a, you know, young kid all the way up until uh, puberty and then suddenly um, took on a, a new identity uh, and landed on being trans. So that's how I got involved in the movement. And um, Pitt was one of the first uh, publications that I found um, to help me in my journey and bring my child back. Okay, thank you. Josie? Hi, my name is Josie. I'm a co-founder of Pitt, Parents with Inconvenient Truths About Trans. And um, my I have a son at 15 who told us that he was trans and um, it was sort of, it was a, we were totally blindsided and had no idea what it meant and what was going on, but we just knew in my gut that something else was going on and we tried to get help. You know, we went to the doctor. The doctor was a gender expert, and he, of course, said, uh, would you rather have a live daughter or a dead son? And we were very confused because we thought that the doctor would, you know, at least do some sort of evaluation or figure it out, but he just took my son's word for it. So it was, he was, he self-diagnosed, basically. And um, we, we, the doctor couldn't even explain what trans was. He, he, he talked about it like it was gay and we were completely confused. And my son was demanding hormones and puberty blockers. And we said no. And we never went back to that doctor. And four years later, my son is now my, 19 and he has been estranged for 11 months oh okay 
And Emily? Yes, um, we have uh, two daughters, but one of whom had exhibited many mental health issues from the time she was about six, and we were constantly in therapy and trying to find solutions, and she was just falling apart. She was cutting, she was depressed, she was suicidal, and at one point she came out as as gay and we were very supportive and you know bought all the flags and everything and and then a few months later um she declared that she was in fact trans at which point our very highly credentialed and broad mental and medical health teams told us that the standard of care is to affirm we heard the suicide myth and we did we transitioned our our we socially transitioned our 12 year old daughter um and we were really desperate and and we weren't 100 percent convinced but we really just didn't know where else to turn and we thought you know we have to trust the experts we have to trust the phds isn't that what we're supposed to do um, i'm sure we'll get into more details about the story but it was not therapeutic it led to um more extreme mental health issues, hospitalizations, a suicide attempt. It was not the right course of care for my child. Eventually, we fired that team. And I will say four years after our initial transition of our child, she is now fully desisted, a 16-year-old um, girl who accepts her quirky self. She's received an autism diagnosis, and she is um, now much happier and healthier in her body. Okay. The way I found Pitt, so Pitt was really part of the journey towards saying, like, are we crazy or are there other parents out there? And it was really, a, you know, a, a lifeboat for us to say we are not alone. And there are other parents who are digging deeply into this topic, parents who are who know their children, who um, are committed to reading the literature and the studies and really finding the best care for their children with the idea that resolution of dysphoria is the best outcome. Okay, so let's talk about the founding of PIT then, because it is such an important resource for the parents, but also for reaching. I one of the one of the ways that I got involved in this debate was when I discovered the stories of the parents, and I was absolutely horrified by what you were going through, and that's that that's how I got involved. So. It's a medical scandal, a, a, a mad cultural moment, a social contagion, and a, an atrocious medical scandal. And parents are, they don't have a voice, they're not listened to, they're vilified, they're demonized. So how did you come up with the idea of setting up this group, Josie? And were you, were you afraid to set it up, knowing the, the reaction that it would, that it would incur? Um, I wasn't afraid to set it up. It, it was sort of a happy accident. I, since I have a son and, um, there wasn't anything, um, about boys out there. It was all about girls. Lisa Littman's study was on girls. And then Abigail Schreier's book was about girls. And I had joined a boys group, uh, parents with, with boys because we were trying to figure out how do we get our stories out and how do we tell the world we exist too and that our boys are also ROGD and okay sorry to interrupt and what year was this oh this was um 2020 that okay. I joined the the boys group 
Okay, sorry, continue. And, and then we started, we decided that maybe we could start writing. And we teamed up with uh, a man in Ireland named Alistair Gunn, who went by the pseudonym Angus Fox. And he wrote the Quillette article about our boys. And then we all, we just, we decided to do a boys blitz where a bunch of us parents wrote a boys story, a story about our sons to try and get them published so that we could get some recognition. And we did that. And then we, one of the moms got her pieces taken off of medium. So we decided we would start a Substack. And so I started the Substack with this mom and she lives in New York. I live in California. We've never met in person, but we have been running this ever since. And that was 2021 June where we put up the first article and we started publishing. And the idea was we were just going to write boy stories and it was just going to be about boys. And she came up with the name. And so we were just, you know, we were both writing and we, I was publishing like one or two a week. And then we asked some of our um, friends in the boys group if they would write and they did. And it was sort of catching on. We were getting subscribers and I was tweeting it out. And then we decided, well, let's ask a girl parent. So we asked a girl parent and she wrote a story. And then all of a sudden, people were sending me stories. And um, we got a story, I think, in July, at the end of July. And that went viral. It was called um, My Daughter's Therapist, You Were Wrong. And, it, it, you know, I was just watching the reads that day. And it was just like going over 10,000. And we were like, what's happening here? And you know, we just kept getting more and more subscribers and, you know, it, we, we didn't have any expectations. We just were like, let's just, you know, get the word out about boys. And then we noticed that there were some gender doctors joining the Substack, and we got kind of spooked. So I talked to um, Stella at GenSpec and she decided to take us under the umbrella of GenSpec so that we, we would be safe. We were just nervous that we would get doxxed or something. And that's how we came up with, um, that's why we're part of, sort of, we're not really part of GenSpec, but we just have an email and they promote us. Um, but uh, Pitt is about, is, is our skeptical parents who don't think that, their children are trans and that's what we're writing about. You know, it's mostly ROGD. There's been a couple of parents who had a younger kid, but it's mostly ROGD parents. And, you know, I wish there was something like that when I found out about this, but there was no information. In fact, it took me six months to find anything. And so I think there was just a need for something like this and parents learned how many of us are out there and that they weren't alone and they were not crazy. We'll talk about ROGD briefly and then we'll have, because the boys and the girls, there are similarities, but there are also, there are, there are big differences too. So rapid onset gender dysphoria, well, the, the, the term was coined in 2018 by a researcher 
Dr. Lisa Lippman, who she had observed in her community, if I remember correctly, that the, the one girl after another after another was announcing a transgender identity and, and was taking a medical pathway. And she, as an epidemiologist, I think, she um, found this odd and, and wanted to just investigate to see what was going on. And so she got gathered stories from parents who were in groups that, that, that were skeptical but there's nothing wrong with doing that. The the pro-affirmation groups, they, they will gather their parents, their, their study participants from pro-affirmation like websites. And she she found that, you know, there was an obvious peer contagion that these girls were suffering from um, multiple psychiatric comorbidities, long history of mental health issues, spending an awful lot of time online pre the 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 very sudden announcement that they were transgender. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about ROGD. Now, Erin or Emily, can you give me the sort of the profile of an ROGD girl first? What's the typical ROGD girl? I, I can tell the story of my child. I don't know how much she matches the the profile, but it seems pretty consistent. Um, you know, when kids are moving from kind of childhood through tweenhood to adolescence, it's really important for them to have a friend group and to kind of find their space in the world and to separate from the family. And often that is hard for kids who don't fit in, who are gender non-conforming or might be on the spectrum or have other issues or maybe just a little bit different. And in our case, our child um, had and diagnosed autism, she had a little bit of trouble as kids started to mature in finding a friend group. Um, and she was also having behavioral problems at, ish at, at school that were somewhat stigmatizing and making it hard for her to kind of separate from the family. And what she found was she found a group online that was her friend group that sort of became the welcoming space. And what she had said to us and the way she articulated this which I thought was very insightful, is that when she found the Pride community, she said, um, you know, it really felt like these were her people. She said, I am more than an ally. I know I'm not just an ally. I am part of this community. And it was a community that was welcoming. It was a new tribe for her. And it was in some ways developmentally appropriate for her to feel like this was her crew. But what wasn't developmentally appropriate was the suggestion that to be part of this group meant that you were in some way different. And at first that sort of expressed itself as um, a gay identity, but I think as kids grow onward and they start to start to experience crushes and things, if you don't fit into that box, the only one left is really non-binary or trans. And I think that that um, suggestion um, felt really appealing and it felt right. And it felt like an, a theory of mind for why my child was different. And um, it's very hard then to say that's not right because there is no contrast. It's kind of just a belief system. And she fell into that. And I've heard many stories of similar kids who, you know, the kids who have no problems fitting in, they don't seem to end up in the space. It's more of the kids who are like, who feel like I'm different somehow. Then they start to seek what the cause might be of that difference. And this feels like a very neat answer to that. 
and there's a and there's a tribe willing to welcome them into their fold and love bomb them and celebrate them and give them the acceptance that they so desperately crave. It's a very common story. Erin, do you have anything to add to that profile? Uh, yeah, that's very accurate. I mean, I I do some of the intake for parents of ROGD kids for Northern California. I'm one of the co-leads. And really, all I need the parent to tell me is the age and sex of the child. And I can actually give their profile. Um, I can say, okay, it's a young girl who's 15, and I can run down I can even ask the questions. So ADHD, anxiety, depression, they always have a comorbid mental health issue. Um, doesn't, you know, is not the Lululemon kid, you know, the, the sporty kid, the, the popular girl uh, has a hard time making friends, developed uh, physically early. Uh, I mean, I can just run down the, run down the list for girls. And, and to me too, it, it's shocking um, that the doctors aren't able to do this because I, I'm a lay person and I deal with hundreds, if not thousands of, of these parents, and the patterns are as clear as can be. Anime, uh, early exposure to porn, uh, you know, really did poorly over the pandemic, spends too much time online, considers her online friends her real friends, doesn't have tangible real friends. There's a, there's a discrete pattern. And then I, I'm not gonna talk over Josie, but when boys come in, well, and there's a different pattern also for the girls who are who are older. So the ones that come in at like 21 or 22, they also have a profile that is different than the younger girls. Um, they are the social justice warriors, um, have PCOS, uh, tend to be um, over overweight, and and you know, or um, feel that they're unattractive tend to be same-sex attracted, uh, going to liberal arts schools. Like there's a whole pattern. And it's it's so clear to me. I would love to write up the diagno diagnostic standards on this, on what you need to ask um, be to ferret out whether there's a, you know, a true trans person or not, because there's, there's not. And then for the boys, the boys come in with the same pattern it, or a different pattern, but they also have a pattern. And Josie will talk about that. But I find the, the boys are very mathematically inclined. They're autistic, um, Asperger's, really into computers, br brilliant. They tend to be brilliant kids. Um, never really had a girlfriend. Uh, again, the friend group is, is very small. Um, you know, to me, again, it, it's as clear as can be. And anybody who uh, dispels or or goes against what Lisa Littman said. Um, th they're just wrong. I mean, talk talk to, talk to the parents because, again, you, you, it's like deja vu. When I tell my story, I, I get email after email. That's my story too. Of course it is because there's a pattern. There's a pattern. Kids don't just I hear you. fall into this. I was going to say, I hear you and you're describing the, the younger girls and the anime and the ADHD and the spectrum. And I'm like, check, 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 check. It's, it feels exactly like our story. It's, it's mind blowing to me that there are people in the medical world who cannot see what is so blatantly obvious right in front of their eyes. So Josie, profile the boys for me if you can. Um, sure. So the ROGD boys, um, we did parent surveys of the boys and um, 
85% of the boys had an IQ over 130 and much higher even. And all the parents described their boys as quirky, socially awkward. Um, many of them have girlfriends who um, most of them are heterosexual and they have girlfriends who are cheerleading them. Um, this is very common that the boys have a girlfriend and the girl gets to dress up the boy and cheerlead him around. You know, I know it does happen in reverse because I know parents of daughters who's the, the guy wanted um, their, their daughter to be trans so he could be in the queer community. I've heard this. So it's, it's a common um, thing where queer is very popular. So, you know, if you're dating and you can say you're a lesbian as a boy, then, you know, you're part of the queer community. And I think there's a lot of um, negative aspects of being a white male in society. And I think that's a lot of the reasons why the boys think that they could be a girl because then they don't, then they don't have to end up a man who harms women. I know that was my son's thing. He didn't, he was afraid of women. I'm, I'm not afraid of women. Sorry. He was afraid that he would harm women in some way, but he might be harming women in another way by being trans because he's taking away things, which they don't understand that. Um, but also my son um, decided he was trans in a, in a friend group. So it's also social contagion with the boys. Um, he has a friend that they decide they were trans together and his friend transitioned. So, and the other thing I wanted to say is we did a parent survey. Um, we had almost 1,400 parents take the survey, and 79% of these kids were conforming as children, which tells you that that's a social contagion because if they were non-conforming, you know, you might suspect that they, they could be gay or trans, but usually the conforming kids are heterosexual. And don't have gender issues as kids. Okay, Erin, you have your hand up. Is that? Uh, yeah, I just I, I wanted to build on that a, a little bit um, about the the whole gender nonconforming too, because that that doesn't. <laughs> I mean, we we could sit here all all day. There's there's kids who were tomboys and then they say that they're trans, and, and there's really no connection on how the kid was younger. Um, because it, it's just a falsehood. I mean, I really want to, to state that there is no such thing as a trans child and there's no such thing as a trans adult. There is no possibility of anybody being born in the wrong body. And the social contagion aspect of this is immense, especially, I mean, you look at us, we're three white women. We are three middle-class to upper class white women, there was a there is a push in the schools to make kids feel guilty uh, for being 
uh, comfortable, for having parents that are not divorced, for having their own bedroom, for having a bathroom, for having never missed a meal. Um, it's almost like that's a that's actually a black mark that you haven't suffered. And so the only way a child can opt in into a marginalized community is to is to say that they're somewhere on the alphabet of LGBTQ. And it's a it's an escape hatch from from guilt of and, and girls and, and you know, girls tend to want to conform and be light. That's a very, very important aspect of their teenage years. Um, and so what they can't change race, although people are working on it, right? There's there's trans racial talking now. It's just absurd. Um, but you can't you you can't change race. You you can't get rid of your parents and say that now you you don't have a car in your driveway. And so what do they do? They glum onto this identity and then they get stuck in it. Uh, because they are love bombed, exactly what you said. They are they are love bombed, and then they they get the friend group is all based on their trans identity, and they can't escape it. Um, they're stuck now because everyone is treating them sp- as a special. They become super special at school. Um, my daughter could turn in her her homework and her classwork whenever she wanted to. I mean, she was untouchable touch yeah so this is this is the victimhood culture combined with the separating society into oppressor and oppressed class and i think when we talk about it it makes it sound as though the kids are doing it deliberately and you know like oh i i don't want to be the an, an oppressor so i'm just gonna identify as trans and get out of it and it's not they 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 don't understand that that's what they're doing. But I think because they're typically the kids who are not thriving, they look at their own lives and they think, I'm not privileged. How can I be privileged? I'm depressed. I'm miserable. I hate my body. I have no friends. I'm isolated or whatever. And so they they look for an answer as to, well, well I'm not privileged. I don't feel privileged. I don't feel like an oppressor. I must be trans or i must be non-binary or or a way the only way out that they can see so it's it's very sad and uh, again the schools are encouraging it as you say this might be a good time to go right into what's going on in schools because they're they're the right at the center of this social contagion and the way they treat parents uh, you can tell me your experiences with schools now i think because i think it's appalling how they treat parents who wants to go first? Um, I'll go. Um, I had a horrible experience with school. Um, this all happened, you know, right before the lockdown. So once he was, we were in lockdown, he changed his name uh, with the counselor. And she did, she changed the name and everything without us telling. And then I emailed her and she ignored me. And uh, later, he became very close to a teacher, and that teacher actively tried to get housing for my son out of our house. He called uh, the LGBT um, housing place here and tried to help him find housing when he was a minor. 
And then he did it again when he was right after he turned 18. And I know this because I saw the email. That can the I teacher ask, can I interrupt? Was, was <laughs> in my mind, he's a very young teacher and he's an activist and he doesn't have children. Am I right? He's an older man. Goodness. And he has children. Wow. Wow. Unfathomable. Yeah, and that's we feel is the reason we he he left is because he had this teacher pushing him to leave, you know, telling him we were abusive parents and we couldn't do anything. We couldn't go to the school because of the lockdown. Uh, this school wouldn't let parents in the school. We tried to have a meeting with this teacher. He wouldn't give us a teacher. I mean, he wouldn't give us a meeting. He kept saying, oh, I, I don't have a meeting for three months. And we're like, what? Like, school's out by then. And we could not get um, any help. And, you know, we, we emailed the principal. Nobody would respond. You know, we could have taken our kid out of school, but we were afraid that would do more harm. So we, were, we felt really stuck because we, we didn't want our kid, our kid, didn't want to leave so and he's 17 and then 18 and if you you can't do much when they're that age because then they'll hate you and we thought then he'll leave but he left anyway oh i these stories genuinely horrify me that that a, that a teacher could think that they have the right to, to change a name to to step in and and that they they think they know the child better than the parents who raised them from the day they were born. I I find it horrifying. Mia, I, I I've I've sat in meetings with teachers where teachers are being taught this, and so I have, I I I have, you know, ill will towards these teachers, and then I also have empathy because I, I I've sat in the room with them, where there is an instructor telling them that. Um, parents are bad and that we are evil and that we don't have a, the best interest of our kids um, in mind and that these kids will, will, will commit suicide if they have parents like me um, who, who refuse to uh, transition my child. And they really believe it because these, these teachers sitting in the audience they have the same tools that we as parents had, which were none. There was it was a Herculean task to find um, articles and books that that disavowed the suicide, um, you know, uh, narrative. You can type in right now forty one percent suicide, and you'll get hundreds of hits on the internet saying that trans kids commit suicide. N none of these teachers read those studies. Um, you have to read the studies, and, and they're not interested in reading the studies. They, you know, we are living in a society where people read headlines only. They don't do their own research, and we've got uh, young reporters uh, who just, you know, they they're it's clickbait, right? So they don't read the studies either. So these studies are based on one question: Have you ever uh, considered suicide? If I answered that question, I would say yes, daily. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm truly suicidal because there's a difference between answering that question, yes, have you ever considered suicide? 
And so these teachers are forced fed this garbage and they don't care enough to educate themselves on the truth behind it. So this person who pushed uh, Josie's son out, uh, he, he was probably well-intentioned. He thinks he's a great guy. He thinks he saved this kid from th this horrible fate of these parents who, I'm sorry, but Josie, she, till the day she dies, she is going to parent her son. That's what we do as parents. We never leave. 365 days out of the year, we don't leave for summer vacation. We don't leave when they change schools. We are the constant. My mother still mothers me, and I'm in my 50s. This is what parents do. Teachers don't do this. They just don't. Um, I'm sorry. I'm going to let Emily tell her, sto her school story, and then I'll, I'll tell my school story. I don't want to hog the time. <laughs> um, my story is a little different because we were following the advice of our PhD, MD, medical, mental health community, um, you know, expensive leather couches. So our story is a little different because we were affirming our child. But what happened, and, and to be honest, the schools were, they didn't question it. They were very accommodating. They were very nice. And at the beginning, like we were like, we have this special child, our child has these special needs. And we were sort of like, you know, into it. And I mean, not 100%, but really trying to create the space that we really were hoping this was the thing that was going to make our child not hate herself and not be in so much pain. It ended up not being that. But what happened was there were a couple of times when my child started to desist. And in her particular case, the children that she was at school with, it was those kids who also told her like, actually, it might be internalized transphobia. And the more you go on, the better we'll get. And so she didn't desist with that at that early stage. So when we started to see her starting to show some signs of desistance, um, as she got older and was in high school, I talked to the counselors there. And I gave them some resources from post trans on detransition and the path towards finding yourself just to have just so she could have access that if she was questioning this pathway, she might be able to have resources from other kids who had been through this and had decided to detransition or desist and that it wasn't the right pathway for them. And our school therapy office said no, they would not allow these materials to even just be on a shelf in their office, they thought it would be triggering to trans children and they did not give us any support. The following year, um, after a conversation with Erin and other folks, um, we had really thought this was the time when we needed to roll things back, at least at our home. And we, we told our child, you know, we're not going to dictate what names and pronouns your school uses, but just at home, we're gonna acknowledge this the success that you've had and all of the strides that you've made as a female and we're, we're going to honor that and we told the school that at home we would be reverting to female pronouns and that we weren't we weren't telling them what they had to do but they did then call my child's therapist and report on us or or question our um you know our our affirmation of our child and whether we were being supportive 
therapist. And thank God we found a really great therapist who was able to support us and said, you know, I've never met parents as supporting and and loving of their child as these. Well, I would say never, but you know, who who supported us and it's been okay and the school hasn't put up much of a fight, but I will say the programming at the school has included things such as so-called experts from gender clinics giving speeches to the um, parental community where not once or twice, but three times in the presentation, they said that doctors guess a child's sex or gender when the child is born, they make a guess. And that's just anti-science. It's not right. It's not fair. It's not accurate. And it's, it's really not progressive. And it's really when an educated adult hears that, I know there's the brainwashing going on. I know that they're being trained in certain ways, but shouldn't, shouldn't that ring alarm bells? This is madness. This is lunacy. But then people, I think, are they, they might have that little alarm bell in their mind, but they're too afraid to say anything because they see the social repercussions. But going back to you, they wouldn't allow the leaflet in the in the school for children who might be uh, unsure regretting their decision or questioning they the, did you push on that or did they just they outright refused and did they give they said it would did they say it was transphobic they said it would be triggering to children who I guess are identifying as trans, that it would be harmful to them. And I, I did not push what I decided was that wasn't the right avenue yeah. for, for these materials. And I, you know, was looking for other ways to just have them at the ready so that when my child was ready, which eventually she was, she would have those resources to say, I'm not alone. Because one of the things we find, um, or parents I've talked to, is that once you kind of go into this space, and especially my child, for example, that from the ages of 12 to 16, those are really important identity forming years and um, social warming years. And it's really hard to back down. There's no off ramp. There's no way to save face and to be your sex and be yourself. It's really hard. They don't have a pathway. They don't have a model. They don't have people that they can go to. So in our case, what we we actually did, which, you know, it didn't work 100%, but it was helpful is we got rid of our affirming um, medical and mental health team. And I ended up just finding a vocal detransitioner on Twitter and saying, you know, can you tell your story to my child? And I ended up just saying, like, I'll give you $100 an hour. Just chat with my kid. Tell her your story. And that, you know, at least gave her a viewpoint that this is there. This is a more flexible space. Um, and we never really even talked about it as detransition. We just talked about it as evolving forward and like finding, you know, happiness and healthiness in your in your body. That's actually a brilliant idea to get a detransitioner. I interviewed As Hakim last week and As Hakim ran the the group at the Tavistock before all the madness where he put um, people wishing to transition with people who regretted their transition so they they were the euphoric ones at the beginning and they were all excited and then there was the sorrow and despair at the end and he put the two groups together 
and ended up almost no one seeking transition ended up transitioning because they saw the reality of it not the the glitter and the rainbows that that was a brilliant idea that you had well when my husband first started to have doubts and of course we we thought about the right path because i thought if our child kills himself i was using he him pronouns and we didn't try this you know we'll never forgive ourselves and and he had introduced me to the stories of detransitioners and i had never even heard that word before i was i was like there are people who detransition and just even the fact that that was hidden from our knowledge and not talked about was just really irresponsible i think on the part of the mental health community absolutely so um erin we didn't hear your school story yet did we uh no but i i did want to jump in and say um what emily did was was brilliant and and we did a similar thing to uh to get our daughter to desist and i i highly recommend it what we what i did was i listened to um benjamin boyce's interviews with detransitioners and i i found the story essentially of my my daughter and um and it was helena it was the interview with helena and i think jen speck also did an interview with her but when my daughter was a captive audience in a car long car ride i put it on and she of course was furious i'm not listening to this and you know you're transphobic um but she actually did listen to it and it it, it was her and it was a way for her to hear from another young woman um hey i believed all this stuff too and i was the same kid as you i was into anime and i used to cosplay and ship and you know all these things and she could see herself there and i'll never know you know really probably until my daughter's 25 what was the pivotal moment when she realized that she's not a not actually a boy um but i think that was really instrumental in kind of because it's not coming out of my mouth it's not me lecturing <laughs> Uh, but our school story is is really similar to Josie's. It's just hor horrifying. Um, my my daughter first started in in seventh grade. She had her sex ed class, and this was my on ramp into what the hell are they teaching at school? Because um, all of her friend group came over to my house after the last installment, which was five hours, five hours uh, in seventh grade, one hour dedicated to gender and they all um they all picked something on the alphabet not one of them said that they were uh a, a straight kid and um they called me sis and and started laughing i was like i don't even know what that means so i went to the parenting class about the sex ed course uh because i'm an involved parent i'm like what what nonsense are they teaching these kids and i was astounded by the class and i was the sole person interrupting the nonsense when they said if you're not gi joe or barbie you're somewhere on the spectrum and i'm like oh so we're all trans i i mean i lost my mind in this meeting my hand kept shooting up saying this doesn't make sense why are we labeling what the hell is non-binary this doesn't make sense it's not scientifically accurate and you know people are looking over at me and they're like are you buying this you I live in a very educated area of the country, you know, Silicon Valley. And I'm looking around, I'm like, nobody's thinking here. Nobody's thinking. I had no idea I was walking into the hornet's nest. N no idea. 
then two years later, when you know my daughter had landed on a pansexual, which again is a nonsensical description for an 11 year old um, who's never been involved in a relationship, or nor should she have. Um, and then during the pandemic is when she picked up her trans identity and started her public school in ninth grade. We weren't in school. She never met any of her teachers. She never stepped foot in that school. Uh, first week of school, what's your name and pronoun? Uh, I'm down the hall. So I can hear what's going on in her bedroom. And suddenly there's a male name, male pronouns. They're doing their first project was all about gender identity and intersectionality. What is going on? I called the school. Um, the administration told me they, they were a safe space for my daughter. And I asked them to define the word safe, which is a word I no longer use because it has no meaning. They couldn't define it. Um, I said, tell me something. Tell me something about me. Tell me something about my daughter. You've never met her. Lay it on me. What do you got? Nothing. They couldn't tell me the color of her eyes, but they changed her name. So I went ballistic. Um, and, uh, a few days later, uh, Child Protective Services showed up at my door. Now, the school might, may claim it's because, you know, they were stalking my daughter, which is what they do in all public schools. Don't, don't use their iPads. Uh, they, they track everything your kid is looking at. Um, they, they saw that she had searched up how to, how, how, how many monster drinks it takes to kill a kid. Um, and so they said, oh, that's a suicide uh, threat. No, no, it's not. It's a kid looking at like, did Mikey die from Pop Rocks? Um, but CPS showed up at my house. Um, I so was so naive, even as a lawyer, so naive. Thinking, oh, she's going to understand. Of course, she's going to understand. My, my kid is like, they're coming to help me. How amazing. No, that's not the case at all. Uh, the police showed up next. Um and luckily, I think because I threw out my lawyer card, um, they never came back and didn't start open up an investigation, but they surely could have. Um, and, uh, but, you know, as you can probably figure out, I, I don't back down easily and I'm not a wallflower and I'm fearless um, when it comes to the protection of, of my child um, and other people's children. But um, so I pulled her from the public school and the interesting part, all these teachers who were so concerned about my child, so concerned about her safety, not one of them called, not one of them emailed, not one of them reached out to my daughter. And that was something I told her. I'm like, hey, how, how about those do-gooder teachers? Are they checking in and see how you're doing? Oh, they don't care. They only care enough to disrupt the family. They only care enough to virtual sig signal and say, look at, look at me. I'm such a good person. I, I saved a trans kid. Um, and then I sent her to a Catholic school and the Catholic school wasn't much better. I'll, I'll tell you um, here in California, they're just as captured. Uh, they refused to call her by a female name. Um, they threatened to throw me out of the school when I supplied the teachers with Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage, you know, a bestseller. Um, I somehow caused them to, um, what, it, what was the word that they used? I made them uncomfortable. And I said, you know what makes me uncomfortable? 
a school telling me my daughter is a son. That makes me uncomfortable. Uh, so schools are, are, are a huge problem and it is the pipeline. It is the pipeline to medicalization. And many of the teachers know it and many of the administration knows it. And the silent teachers, I'm sorry, I have no empathy for you either. Um, everyone needs to speak up. Lose your job. There's lawyers waiting around the corner who will file suit for you. But the schools are the pipeline. I ask teachers, teachers who have been there 30 years, 20 years, when was the first time you heard the word trans kid? Five years ago. How long have you been teaching? Where did all these other kids go? You know, why isn't there a, you know, all these 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds who are finally free to transition? Why aren't they doing it? Because you, you are teaching this. The, the schools are teaching this. So the schools are not our friend. Um, they're not our friend at all. And I feel really scared for the next generation of kids because my kid got her dose in seventh grade and maybe in fifth grade with the puberty lessons. But now they're getting it at kindergarten and fourth grade. They are getting read that you could be born in the wrong body. And that seed stays in that child. And when that child goes through an uncomfortable moment like puberty, then that seed gets to sprout. And these teachers know that what they're doing is wrong because they hide it. They hide the books. They don't show them on the bookshelf. They read them at circle time and then put the books away. They, they, they hold their affinity groups at lunch so they don't have to get parent, parental consent. They know exactly what they're doing. Exactly. And, and to what Josie said about, you know, schools actually enticing kids to run away. It's, it's the schools are doing that. And the internet, my daughter looked to emancipate. She printed out the papers at 13. 13. Because somebody told her how to do it. Wow. Josie, you have your, your hand up? Yeah, I just wanted to add another thing about schools. Um, when my son was in middle school, they, a trans woman came to the, the school and did an assembly. And um, I think that's maybe what planted the seed. He came home from school. I wasn't home, but he told my husband, I didn't know you could be born in the wrong body. And my husband didn't think anything of it because my son was so secure with who he was. You know, he was all boy. He was an athlete. He, he was a very typical boy. So it never even occurred to my husband to be concerned about that because he just sort of shrugged it up. And when I was in middle school, you know, a born again Christian guy came and did an assembly but his message was to stay off drugs you know so so this is the new religion is but they're not telling the kids to stay off drugs they're pushing the drugs you've reached the end of this episode of the free version of public's podcast to access the full version become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com